episode 48 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World with Chris Ryan, Ph.D. Chris Ryan is the author of Sex at Dawn. And I forgot to do the notes. I was going to read something so I knew what to say about him. So I'll just read this bio that I found here. Chris Ryan, Ph.D., is a psychologist, teacher, and author. Together with... Casilda? Sakilda? Casilda? Casilda Jetha, M.D.? He is a co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality. Um, subtitle of Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships. From his site, sexatdawn.com, it says, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality. So there's a few things there. Uh, we talk about this book, his past, uh, some things he's working on coming up. His uh, Chris has a podcast called Tangentially Speaking, and I like this quote, dedicated to the idea that good conversation has to be organic, revelatory, and free to go down unexpected paths. I think we kind of did that on did that on this episode. Um, I wondered a, a bit too far off and I didn't uncover a lot of the things I wanted to talk to Chris about so um kind of wandered in the wilderness a bit I didn't steer it I hope you like it though um hope you find it interesting you know please check out the episode link at askbrian.com slash the podcast slash 48 just go to askbrian.com and click some links you'll find it please support the show by clicking the donate button that's attached to every episode or any of the sponsored links, Audible, Amazon, Total Transformation Program, rating and or reviewing at iTunes. I know this is the same shit you hear on the, every podcast, but I guess this crap's important. I don't know. Um, I just hope you like the content. I did want to mention, we talk about... I think I wasn't very clear. I just said the name Duncan in this episode. And it, well, who I'm referring to is Duncan Trussell. I love Duncan Trussell. DTFH, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, is a podcast. I, I highly recommend it. Please check it out. Check out Chris's podcast, Tangentially Speaking, or is it Tangentially? Tangentially Speaking. How do you say that? Yeah, speaking of which, I won't even be able to pronounce the name of this episode. The Transcendental Tangential. So that that's fun. Name a name an episode something you can't pronounce. That's a great idea. So I'm just gonna call it episode forty-eight. That was a long winded intro. No proper commercial. Just go to askbrian.com and click the resources tab. You know, what What were you doing before the book? A little bit of background. Uh, I've done so many things. You know, I got out of, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but essentially I was on track to be a literature professor, um, like my father and my grandfather and my best friend in college was the head of the English department. And, you know, I had all these great contacts for grad school at Oxford and all this stuff and everything was sort of heading toward that and um, I found a loophole in the school handbook and um, using this loophole I could skip my junior year and uh, still graduate on time so I skipped my junior year and I decided I was going to take that time to go and see uh, the last frontier or one of the last frontiers which was Alaska so I hitchhiked from my college in upstate New York to Alaska and uh, worked on in a salmon cannery that summer and then hitchhiked back. Glorious work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very interesting work. 
But what happened, I had all these crazy experiences along the way and, and met some amazing people and spent a few days in prison and, and uh, got shot at and just had all these crazy adventures. And I had so much fun. It changed my life um, so radically that I decided I didn't actually want to go to graduate school. And what I wanted to do was spend the next 10 or 15 years just traveling around the world. So that's what I did. I was like 21 or something when I had that epiphany. And so I went back. I did my last year in college. And then I just took off and started traveling and having adventures. And uh, so that's what I did my 20s and most of my 30s. Hmm. And uh Somewhere along the line, I guess I was, uh, let's see, I was probably early 30s. I went to a place called Findhorn in Scotland, which is a New Age center, uh, very interesting place um, in northern Scotland. And I was up there, and um, again, I was just hitchhiking around, and I met some people, and they invited me to, to stay there for a week and do some courses and and uh, just sort of hang out and get to know the place. And while I was there, I met psychologists who were really interesting people. And I had always thought that, you know, to get a PhD in psychology, you'd have to spend five or six years watching rats run through a maze or <laughs> do some shit like that. And so I met all these people who had a PhD in psychology and their their lives were fascinating. They were really interesting people. They weren't you know, reductionist, um, mechanistic kind of, uh, you know, B.F. Skinner followers that I, I thought all research psychology was along those lines. And so that gave me a path forward because I, I knew I wanted to get an advanced degree and do something with my brain because I'd been teaching English for a long time and doing translations and stuff like that. You know, just the kind of stuff you do when you're on the road to make some money. And... um so that that's when I decided to go back to school and get a PhD in psychology. Um, I was in my early to mid thirties at that point. Yeah, in some ways, perhaps it's unfortunate you didn't go down the the literary path because you'd bring a whole different freshness to it. <laughs> like so far, like I love literature. I'm a big poetry fan, and I have a, a favorite of mine is Professor Drought. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, but he's like one of the only guys I've found that can uh, relay literature to me. I, I, I do. I listen to his uh, lectures, audio lectures, and there's just not a lot of people out there in that world that can sell the story of literature. You know. Well, you know, I think it's I like th that reductionist psychology thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the reason I decided not to do it, um, which might relate to to the problem that you're you're pointing to, is that um, I, I had this realization that um, well, there are a whole bunch of realizations that that hit me at once. But one of them was that the literature I most enjoyed was uh, the transcendentalist American tradition. So. We're talking about Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, and uh, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden and Civil Disobedience, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and then some sort of associated non-Americans like uh, Joseph Conrad, uh, who wrote Heart of Darkness, among many other things. And a lot of these books uh, are about experience. I was going to say they're experiential, yeah. Yeah, they're about adventure and you know, facing the unknown and, and sort of digging into yourself by putting yourself in, in unusual um, circumstances and all that. And, you know, literature in general is about self-revelation and uh, self-examination and all that. And um, <clears throat> I think what I realized was that I would be a fraud. You know, I would I would be a guy who had gone to college, you know, did all my homework and did well on the exams and whatever and then went to graduate school and you know studied this and studied that and you know jumped through all the hoops and then you get a job in a university and you bust your ass trying to get tenure and then you know maybe if you're lucky by the time you're in your mid-30s you've got tenure in some university and you spend the rest of your life talking about uh 
types of experience that you yourself that you've never done you've never experienced yeah exactly it, what the fuck am I doing? You know, I don't yeah, want. Yeah, but you could have, you could have cataloged all the hot babes on campus, and yeah, and I would have fired by. You, know. <laughs> you wouldn't have lasted. Yeah, I think you. I think you did choose the right path. <laughs> so, I mean, the other thing I, I realized was that, you know, I, I was enough. I was a good enough student that I was um, pretty full of myself and. Uh, I was I was very pedantic, and uh, you know I met these people on the road, you know, and I'm hitchhiking across Canada with a backpack. Probably half the weight of my backpack was books, right? I had, you know, D. H. Lawrence's collected poetry, and uh, I think I had Carl Jung's autobiography, and you know, I had all this stuff. And uh, you know, people were picking me up, and they would you know, take me home and, you know, let me sleep in their house and they fed me and then they'd get up in the morning and drive me back out to the highway. And they really went out of their way to, to help me out. And I remember thinking how ironic it was that they were being so generous and kind to me. But if they had stumbled into my world with my friends, you know, with their, their high IQs and their PhDs, my friends would not have been generous to them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I sort of got into this position where I looked at my friends and, and in reflection, I looked at myself and I thought, you know what? These people, they, they don't know who the fuck Nietzsche is and they don't know, they've never read, uh, you know, some obscure text from 17th century poetry or whatever, but they're good people. They're smart. They're not necessarily as educated as I'm used to, but they're very smart. And they they have a kind of knowledge that I and my friends don't have. Mm. They've healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, they've built their own fucking house. They know how to fix their car when it breaks down. Tribal wisdom. Yeah, practical wisdom. Yeah. You know, and 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 their lives are you know, in the final analysis, they're living a better life than my super intellectual friends back in New York were and and they're they're kind and they're happy and my friends were fucking miserable <laughs> so I guess you know I, I looked at that you know I was a young guy I was 20 21 years old and I looked at those two paths and I thought you know who do I want to be who do I want to be like I'd rather be like these guys you know with their happy families and their you know they got dogs and houses and snowmobiles and they've got like a good interesting fun life um which you know maybe on paper it doesn't look as good as these professors back in new york but in actuality it's a hell of a lot better mm -hmm. so yeah that that was an important insight um you know and and who knows maybe i'll i'll teach literature down the road i still love literature although these days i don't get it much chance to read Maybe when you're old and crusty the time will be right <laughs> i'm almost old and crusty <laughs> all right so then how did you get on to the idea or what was the inspiration for the book sex at dawn uh well i was living in san francisco um going to grad school and you know doing the sort of coursework for the master's degree and starting to think about what to do for a, a PhD. And, um, I was surrounded by women. I, I worked in a, for a nonprofit organization called women in community service. I, I think there were, it was me and one other guy and probably about 50 women working there. And, uh, the, they made me answer the phone, women in community service every day. <laughs> But anyway, I was I was so I was surrounded by like very intelligent, um, politically aware women. A lot of sort of radical feminists, you know, Berkeley types. And my girlfriend was a stripper, so a lot of her friends would hang around, and they were also very smart, um, different kind of crowd. There was some overlap, but um, anyway, so I my life was just full of smart, outspoken. Um, women and I read a book called uh, The Moral Animal by Robert Wright which is an excellent book a really beautifully written book 
Um, and this was around the time of the Lewinsky-Clinton thing. And uh, I remember thinking, how is it possible if, if men have held all the levers of power since the beginning of time, right? They've had the political power, economic, physical, every kind of power. How is it possible that men have designed a world in which the most powerful man on the planet gets publicly humiliated for doing what pretty much any man would have done. Mm -hmm. You know, it just didn't make sense to me. Like, you know, if we control the game, why did we set up the rules in a way that we're sure to lose? It's just fucking crazy. So I was thinking about that. I read this book, The Moral Animal, which basically uh, articulates what we call the standard narrative in Sex of Dawn, right? This idea that men and women are sort of destined to be in a a conflictive relationship because we have differing reproductive agendas. And so women are constantly trying to trick us into, um, uh, you know, uh, supplying them with protection and food and uh, status and all these things in exchange for sexual fidelity. And meanwhile, we're trying to trick women into giving us their sexual sexual access without, you know, giving up too much of, uh, of our resources. Um, so I read this and I, I thought, wow, this is great. This really explains everything. It makes perfect sense. And then I started talking to women around me and, uh, pretty much without exception, both the strippers and the radical feminists said, uh, uh you know, this is a, a very male phallocentric Victorian vision of, sexuality and this might fit the men but this isn't how women experience sexuality at all so um out of respect for these women i said okay well let me let me reconsider this so i went back and started looking at the original research that that wright refers to Mm -hmm. in his book that's when i came across bonobos for the first time and bonobos completely undermine this vision of of male female sexual dynamic uh where they're having sex all the time and the males aren't you know there's no quid pro quo quo involved there's no uh economic exchange going on necessarily they're just having sex because they like having sex and then I, I started to learn more about other mammals and and the sexual practices of other primates in particular and then I looked at the anthropological stuff and I started coming across all these different uh, tribal people who uh, don't practice uh, this sort of economic um, sexual exchange that, that is at the basis of evolutionary psychology. And, you know, anyway, I, I found all this stuff that undermined this vision of human sexuality. So it was kind of like, you know, I started pulling at a thread and the whole tapestry just started coming apart. Hmm. And when that happened, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. If, you know, it, this is going to require a lot of reading and thinking and investigation. But, but if I'm right, if it's true that this whole thing is more uh, sort of a religious um, argument than a than an actual scientific argument mm-hmm. that would be a really interesting thing to do my doctoral research on so uh in the end that's what i ended up doing so my phd thesis is um i think it's called uh human sexual behavior in the pleistocene or something like that a challenge to the darwinian view hmm. and then sex at dawn is essentially um an expand expand vision of that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. O. yeah um i'd say overall two of the most shocking things in the book for me was the this story you tell about um well for one evolutionary psychology which was relatively new to me that i've been kind of digging around in a little bit and you really go hard at them and you just kind of rip them apart i found that to be very surprising some of them. I mean, the thing is, evolutionary psychology, it's confusing because some I've read reviews of our book that describe me as an evolutionary psychologist, right, which is which would really piss off some of the evolutionary psychologists. Um, but I, I think the the sort of underlying uh, principles of evolutionary psychology are sound. You know, I think obviously 
we can learn a lot about ourselves by understanding how our ancestors lived. But the problem is there's all this political bias built into it. Yeah, that's what I was going to kind of get to. Uh, you kind of revealed that perhaps it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't science-based. It was this these preconceived notions, these uh, whatever they, wherever source they came from, whether it be religion, cultural um, influence, was dominated the science. Yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly the way I see it. You know, although of course our critics argue that we're doing exactly the same thing, so you know people are going to have to make their own judgments mm-hmm. about that. But yeah, I, I think there's, there's an old expression, um, you know, respect respect the man who seeks the truth, but fear him who claims to have found it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think. You know, we've all got bias. We all tend to notice uh, things that that reinforce our own preconceptions. And I certainly don't claim to be immune to any of that. Um, But, yeah, I do think that this is, um, you know, when you find something that is obviously wrong, as it appears to me that the standard narrative, the standard vision of human sexual evolution is obviously wrong. Um, It's generally because you've got cultural pressure uh, that uh, stops the truth from being told. You know, so it's sort of like, um, you know, the Copernican situation is, is the classic example where um, it became quite clear once telescopes were developed that there's no way that the, the Earth was at the center of the solar system and everything made much more sense if you put the sun at the center of the solar system and the Earth spinning around it, then suddenly everything clicked into, into place much better. But there was so much cultural uh, resistance to that idea that you know Galileo was threatened with you know, being burned at the stake for, for saying it. Um, and I think Giordano Bruno was burnt at the stake. Hmm. You know, that, and I think, when was it, in the 1960s, 70s or something, the Catholic Church finally admitted, yes, it's true, Galileo was <laughs> So there's a lot of resistance to that. And I think human sexuality is the same, you know. I just, what, 30, 40 years ago, it was still considered a sin, you know, or, or a sickness to masturbate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... It, it's one thing. It's it, it it really points to something what you're what you're saying about Galileo and science because that is hard science. That is easy observation and matter of fact. And it still took whatever you know, hundreds and hundreds of years to resolve in the you know whether political consciousness or religious consciousness of the fact of where we are in this universe. Now I can imagine the confusion and the, and the, the, the trouble that is created when you're talking about these, you know, these non hard sciences, like the science of the mind and behavior. Yeah. I could see this taking forever to unravel. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think we, we make a mistake if we um, assume that those sorts of expressions of ignorance are relegated to the past. I mean, that's happening. That same sort of thing is happening right now in hard sciences. You know, for example, our drug laws. You know, there's no scientific argument whatsoever for having marijuana be illegal, but alcohol legal, right? There's no scientist on the planet who can make a sustainable argument that marijuana is more dangerous or more toxic in any way than alcohol but yeah and not only that that it's schedule one meaning it has no medical exactly at all even the most you know anyone with any scientific credibility at all is going to say of course marijuana has medical uses it's marijuana has been used for medicinal purposes for more time than any other plant on the planet Mm -hmm. you know it's absurd and and anyone who who has any objective vision at all will accept that it's absurd but the laws are centuries behind you know same thing with hallucinogens any culture on the planet that's had access to hallucinogens 
has considered them to be the greatest gift of the gods, except ours, in which you go to prison. You know, minimum mandatory sentencing laws in the United States. In most states, you will go to prison for longer if you get caught with 100 doses of a hallucinogen than for second-degree murder. It's just, you know, there's absolutely no objective justification for that. But mm-hmm. here we are. Are we... Is that really a, a fear of letting people explore their consciousness and seek truth, or, or, or is there something else, some other angle? I'm, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not either, because these things come about, uh, you know, in ways that that sort of supersede individual consciousness. So. Yeah, we couldn't talk to one particular. We couldn't talk to the head of the, you know, the FBI or the Justice Department or something, and and get an answer as to why these laws are in effect. They they happen on this other, this other dimension. Um, but I do think it it must. I mean, there's something very interesting about that, right? There's, you know, how many people have ever, you know, died from a mushroom overdose, right? Oh, it really doesn't happen. You know, you might do something stupid and, you know, think you can fly and jump out a window or some dumbass shit like that. But mm-hmm. um, do you know who Bill Hicks is? Sure, of course. Yeah. He had, I remember he had this great thing, this great routine where he said, you know, these people who do take acid and you know jump out windows because they think they can fly. Why don't they start off just running down the street and trying to take off? Right, right, right. <laughs> Well, you know, they're they're just honoring the Darwin Award, basically. Exactly. Just wiping themselves out of the history books, which is good for everyone. Yeah, as long as you don't take anyone with you, I guess. Yeah, and that was the other point uh, before uh, was about the two things that were I found the, extremely interesting. One was the takedown of Darwin. And by that, I mean just pointing out that the man was a real... He was a uh, an unbelievable curmudgeon. I mean, <laughs> like on the on the scale of a Kellogg, you know, a, a sexually repressed freak. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got a soft spot for Darwin. I have to say, I, I keep interrupting you before you get to your second I, point. I don't have a point. I'm just here. Uh, you know, Darwin. I would I would agree with you to to this up to the point where we're talking about sexual repression. I, I think you're right. He was very sexually repressed, um, but I do think he was he was also very open minded. So I think he was an extremely complicated guy, a uh, very multifaceted guy. You know, he was on the the Beagle, which went all around South America and then across the South Pacific to Australia and circumnavigated the globe. And, you know, they went through some of the most sexually free regions in the world. They docked in Tahiti and uh, all sorts of uh, islands in the South Pacific where, uh, you know, we would consider sexual paradise. The, yeah, it's the, it's the places Rush Limbaugh flies to on his private jet now. With his, yeah, his Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, the... But Darwin never went ashore, apparently, at least not to partake in the, the, the joys of the women, the local women. So, you know, he, he was he was right there where he could have experienced these things, but he never did. He went back to England, married his cousin at 29 years of age. There's no reason to believe he wasn't a virgin when he married her. Um, the poor guy was extremely repressed. But um, but he was also very open-minded. So, you know, we try to to give him a fair shake in the book because, you know, he does have these two sides where he was very interested in hearing uh, evidence that contradicted his theories. He, he wrote to people all over the world and was very hungry for any information at all, whether it, it confirmed or or disconfirmed his theories. Um, originally our book was when I pitched it to, to publishers, it was called what Darwin didn't know about sex. Hmm. And it was going to be sort of a, uh, sexual erotic biography of Darwin. And I was going to 
um, really get into his personal life much more deeply than than in Sex at Dawn and show how his lack of personal sexual experience and his hang-ups about sex um, uh, distorted his theories and they have come you know through to this day sort of like Freud same thing Freud had a lot of personal sexual hang-ups that got expressed in his theories and then those theories went on and um, distorted Western society for for decades. So anyway, that that was the original idea, but uh, we we backed off from that a bit in Sex at Dawn. Our, our publishers encouraged us to write something uh, more broad because mm. thought that you know only um, evolutionary biologists would be interested in a book that was that. Yeah, deep. I was going to say when you start writing the book, then then who who is your you, since you understand literature, who's your audience? You know, you, you're laying out this rhetoric or whatever. You know, you, you have to speak to an audience. Who is that audience in your mind? Um, the audience was just, you know, really the audience we found. I'm, I'm happy to say we were looking for smart, open-minded people who get excited by new ways of seeing seeing things and and who prefer the truth whether it makes them uncomfortable or not you know that that was pretty much it um i didn't uh, you know write with anyone specific in mind all right just wanted to to connect with people who, who you know find this stuff interesting not scientists but i mean uh we were sort of threading the needle a bit because we wanted to write a book that would be accessible to non-specialists, but that would also speak to therapists and scientists. And, you know, so it was all, that's why there's, it's really heavy. I think you, you mentioned in an email that you'd listen to the, the audio. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the thing is the printed uh, book, there's a lot of end notes, uh, stuff that was originally in the text and, and in negotiating with our editor, he convinced us to put a lot of stuff in the endnotes. So you miss that in the audiobook. Mm-hmm. So we put all the endnotes up on our website for, for people who listen to the audiobook. Um, so you can, you can check that stuff out. Because a lot of, uh, there, there are a lot of digressions, a lot of what I find some of the most interesting material that we put in the end notes. So we tried to write a book that you could read or listen to and just get the general idea and have a good time and get a few laughs and learn some things without it being too heavy. But if you are an evolutionary scientist or a, or a marriage counselor or a psychologist or whatever, um, and you wanted a deeper uh, experience, uh, more detailed, then there's that available as well. Mm-hmm. Try and sort of, str- you know, straddle those two worlds. Yeah, it's kind of the reason I asked um, about who the audience was, because it was readable. Well, in my case, I listened. But it, it, it was interesting, although the, the woman who read it, is a real uh, arrogant kind of tone to her voice and i don't know if that's in the printed copy it was just in her voice you know and then of course my mind would wander because audiobooks suck like for learning they they just go through you they're 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 great for entertainment in my for me for me they just kind of wash over me and i just kind of let things go and my mind wanders crazy you know and me and i'm thinking i wonder if this woman's hot i wonder if she's good looking wonder what what's this woman's age like that that's just me yeah, well, I I have to tell you, I've never listened to an audio book, so not even our own. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't commute or you know work in a way that I could sort of work and listen to it at the same time. So it's just uh, it's just not something that fits into my life. When yeah, they're the only thing that fit for me. So, well, you know when. Uh, when we were talking with audible.com about doing the book, I offered to read it myself, not knowing how much work that would be. I mm-hmm. thought it would, I could sit down at home and just read it into the computer. Um, they, you know, I guess for better or worse, they said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> but they had me read the, the preface. Yeah. The, the preface is really good. I thought, Oh, you know, I thought you were 
I was hoping that it would continue or there'd be more segments of you in there mixed in. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think they were pretty stupid not to investigate that more. Cause I think generally people, you know, unless the author has a really monotone speaking style or, or an irritating voice or something, I think people would generally prefer to hear the author read the Absolutely. Especially someone like you that can read, uh, yeah. convey your message and you know, I wonderfully well. Whereas with her, every time she'd say the word we, like our research shows, we think this, I'm like, stop saying we. It wasn't you. You're just reading this. And then it takes me out of the book. Whereas if you were saying we, it would make sense to me. Right. Yeah, I, you know, we, we had a real adventure with that because, um, you know, like I said, first I offered to do it and they said no, but, you know, go, they scheduled a, a session at a studio for me to read the, the preface. And then they, and then, uh, I don't know, a month later or something, I got an email from a researcher asking me how to pronounce the different, you know, names of tribes in the Amazon and stuff like that. And, um, and she, in her email, she said something like, you know, sorry uh, for, for being in such a rush, but they're already on chapter four and, you know, I really need this stuff by Thursday. And I said, what do you, wh- they're already on chapter four. We're supposed to approve yeah. the, you know, the voice and nobody had ever sent anything to me. Interesting. So, hey, you know, by contract, I've got a right to approve or or veto whoever's reading this book and apparently you're already on chapter four you know what's going on oh so they sent oh sorry sorry you're right so they sent me a sample and i swear to you i'm not exaggerating that this is how the sample was darwin went on the beagle to (laughs) pacific he was accompanied uh, it was like a fucking... I have a few of those in my a few of those audiobooks in my collection. Trust me, yeah. I mean, it was like a computer generated voice. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. So we had this whole hullabaloo with them where we said, "No, sorry, you know, you're gonna have to start all over. It can't possibly be this person. You got to send it." So we really put our foot down, and you know, I'm sure they think we're very difficult clients to deal with or something, but. Um, you know, we really had to fight to even get that arrogant lady you're talking about. So. Uh, it, it was, that's not, it was just an overstatement. It, I finished the book, which is rare for me on an audio book. Um, it, it, it's really, it's, it's great. It's fantastic. I just get, I'm just a fucking idiot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, she I, was I, a good choice and she had a nice voice and she conveyed the message very well and kept me, kept me going, you know? Yeah, and there's a guy in there too, right? I yeah, read... it switches back and forth. The intros are uh, some guy reading quotes from people and things like that. Yeah, we asked for there to be two voices since you know there are two authors, a man and a woman. But I don't know. Anyway, yeah. so uh, yeah, that's that's the audio story. I think next next book, I'm going to insist on reading it. I hope so. I think it'll be great. You know what? You have, um, I guess, Duncan had some influence on you and got you to start your own podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just checked it out recently. I I guess I missed that the first time I heard your interview with him, and I went back and and found it. It's really great. Oh, thanks. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, I just finished the Dr. Weil episode. Oh, yeah, he's great. He's someone um, I was actually very interested in, into, in and read his books in my uh, a while back when I was a little bit younger. I was a huge fan of his. And then I kind of later uh, kind of got the feeling he was kind of a Deepak Chopra. It's just all flash and business kind of thing. But hearing him talk with you kind of brought me back. Um, I'm a little more comfortable with him right now. <laughs> Yeah, you know he's he's an interesting guy because you're right. His early work is very different from where he went when he hit the big time. Yeah, it turned into one of the you know he's one of those PBS promo guys. Like I, that that stuff always 
annoys me. Yeah, he, he you know, he's it's hanging out with him because you get the sense that he's kind of annoyed by it too. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, for example, when he, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you a story how I, I got to know him in a second. But you know, when I asked him for the for the blurb for the book, he, you know, I sent him the the manuscript and he read it and he wrote really kind stuff and um, and I sent it on to our editor and then um, <clears throat> like I don't know, it must have been a week or two weeks after the book came out. I got this panicked email from our editor at HarperCollins saying, "Call, you know, I can, can you? Are you home? I need to talk to you right away." And so he, he called, and I said, "What's what's the problem?" He said, "Well, I just got this uh, email from a uh, law office of so and so and so and so saying we have to immediately stop shipping all copies of the book, and you know, and, and burn all copies or whatever, destroy all, all existing copies." Because we don't have the right to use this quote from Andrew Weil, hmm. I said. Well, he said, "What's what's going on?" I said, "I don't know what's going on. I I got the email from Andrew, and I forwarded the Andrew the, in it, and so I wrote to Andrew. I said, Andrew, what's going on?'" And he he said, "Oh, don't worry. Those are just you know that's my business office or whatever. I'll deal with them." Mm-hmm. And and they just they went away. Yeah. But it, he's got these. You know, it's he's a business. He's a, a big, big bit. He's a brand. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All these people protecting the brand that get in his way as well. You know, so I think he's kind of, um, yeah, he's kind of irritated by that. But you know, it pays the rent. So yeah, you know, it really showed in the interview uh, his his true humanity. Um, you know, really came through. You know, of course, he's brilliant. Um, and properly educated, you know what I mean? Like you point out in the interview, you know, this is not some, he's not some woo guru, like he often pops up on PBS and other places like that. This guy's the real deal. Yeah, he is the real deal. I, in fact, you know, you mentioned Deepak Chopra. I wanted to ask him about Deepak Chopra. And, uh, Oh God, I wish he would have just given that dude a bitch slap. Yeah. I, but you know, I I'm kind of glad that I forgot because yeah, I don't I don't think that would have been I don't think you would have gotten anything out of that. Yeah, he's probably too too cautious. Yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't blame him. I mean, oh, no. well, not at all. He, you know, I was at a I spoke at a conference where Deepak Chopra was also speaking, and by pure chance, I was um, sitting in the audience when Chopra was talking and I was sitting next to a, a particle physicist or a <laughs> quantum physicist uh-huh. or whatever, like super, super genius who was also a presenter at this conference. And so Chopra started talking about the quantum mechanics of love or whatever the, whatever the fuck he was talking about. And I leaned over to this physicist and I said, is this bullshit? <laughs> he said, pure bullshit. Right. Okay, good. I've always wanted, you know, when people start talking about quantum mechanics who aren't physicists, I get very suspicious. But what do I know? You know, I can't dispute it. It can be used to to support any argument. Sure. Who can argue against it? Yeah, because it's just so mysterious, you can just twist it. And then when you tie it to love and tie it to other confusing emotional things and put it on a quantum level, it just, oh, it just wraps people up and sends him to Mars or Venus and all that other bullshit. I was going to say the way I met him was is a really wonderful story. I, it was probably, it was when I just got back from Finhorn. I was living in Barcelona and I was thinking, you know, I, I had this sense I wanted to get a PhD in psychology. But what I wanted to do, I'd been traveling around the world for, you know, 15 years or 10 years or whatever. And <clears throat> I wanted to... Uh, approach psychology from a multicultural perspective the way Andrew Weil approaches medicine from mm-hmm. a multicultural perspective, right? So, you know, Andrew Weil looks at a skin condi- a chronic skin condition, and he might approach that from an Ayurvedic perspective or from a, you know, a Chinese uh, perspective, whereas if there's a massive infection, he's going to approach that from a Western allopathic perspective. So he can choose the 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 cultural perspective that's most appropriate 
to the the condition. Mm -hmm. And I try to do that with psychology, you know. So I wrote him this letter in the middle of the night. I just sent it by way of his publisher. And uh, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to write him a letter. So I wrote this letter, and I sent it off. And, uh, you know, I was essentially asking for advice on graduate programs to, to try to do what, you know, apply, take this multicultural approach and apply it. And I thought, you know, he's for A, he'll probably never see the letter. Mm -hmm. B, you know, even if he saw it, he gets so many letters from people who are, you know, desperate, you know, you're my last hope, please. You know. <laughs> right, right. Um, he's not going to have time or, or interest in answering. But anyway, I sent it off. Two weeks later, I get home, and there's a message on my answering machine that said, Hey, Chris, this is Andy Weil. I got your letter, blah, blah, blah. Give me a call. Here's my number at home. You know, Give me a call anytime. And here's the kicker. I had not included my phone number in the letter. Oh, wow. He called. So he searched Bant you out, yeah. Tracked me down. Yeah, yeah nice. So uh, a year later, I was in San Francisco, and he happened to be in San Francisco to interview or something, and we went out to dinner and and uh, just chatted, and uh, you know that was like 1991, 92, something like that. Oh wow, that's going way back, yeah. yeah. Well, not and, for he's been around a long time, but yeah, this was. Uh, but this was when uh, we talked about this a bit in the interview. He, this was before he hit really big. Yeah. After his books about consciousness and drugs and all that, and I think it was after uh, Natural Health, Natural Medicine, but it was before Spontaneous Healing, which was the book that really mm -hmm. catapulted him up into the stratosphere. Yeah, we need to get him as a Surgeon General. Oh, that would be great because that you know the position is a farce, and he could bring some real, real gravity and purpose to to that position. He'd probably yeah. turn it down <laughs> oh, oh, if he was wise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they would, you know, the fucking Republicans throttle would, him. Yeah, I mean, all he's, you know, he's never uh, tried to pretend that he hasn't personally done all sorts of illegal drugs. Right, right. And you know, he's not out there on some d drug campaign. You know, it's just a. I, I really loved his. Um, his candor in the interview and you know him even talking about how it was actually important or extremely relevant that he achieved fame that that possibly was more important than the wealth mm. and, and maybe in that means in, in spreading a message or you know or, or getting traction that the fame was actually a, a big part of that so right right the celebrity based culture right right yeah and he's you know, and he's right. He was not blowing smoke when he said that he's a pretty introverted guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were there at his house for three days, and uh, you know, it was just us, him, and and his dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty and, sweet. That that must have been a, a a really important time for you. Yeah, it was pretty beautiful. Yeah. But but I mean, what I was going to say is, we didn't really um, see a lot. Him because he was working in his garden and then he'd go up into his office and, and do some writing, you know, and then we would see him at like maybe 4 p.m. You know, we have a glass of wine and then cook dinner and eat and watch the sunset. And then he was in bed, you know, by nine and then he was up again at seven the next morning working in the garden. Yeah. He's got a, a pretty down to earth lifestyle. That's cool. I found one thing interesting from the interview. You know, you actually asked him about the paleo diet, and he right. kind of he kind of shrugged it off and said, "Eh, it's not all that." And yet he went on to say that he pretty much eats a paleo diet. Yeah, <laughs> I found that pretty curious. Except then you both turned it into the Mediterranean diet, and then I started scratching my head and wanted to call you both <laughs> and straighten your asses out, but. So is that your thing? You're you're a big paleo guy. Ah, uh, you know, it's a brand. It's a name. Um, I use it as a template um, for food awareness. I think that's its. I think that's its value um, to everyone is awareness of food, food right. quality, sourcing, ecology, economy. That's the value and importance of paleo. Not honoring some 
mythological evolutionary diet, that's, you know, that's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Yeah. It's eating real food and eliminating some toxic foods, you know, and just getting some awareness of input, output. That's all. Yeah. So, you know, I love it a lot, but, um, you know, there's just this myth of this, um, Mediterranean diet and it's been bastardized and it's, it's, it's just not true at all. Um, I'm a big hater of the Cleveland Clinic. Mm. They happen to be they're the local hospital. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. They have the number one heart center in the world. It's the largest single-purpose health facility, you know, on the planet Earth, their heart center. And I read their book, Heart 411, you know, the compendium of all things heart. And it's just a bunch of bullshit because they say you need to eat a Mediterranean diet, which is a diet with low-fat dairy. There's no fucking such thing as low-fat dairy. That's 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 invented. That that that's an impossibility. How the how the hell could there be low-fat dairy? You know, that's just a that's an industrial food. Right. And then, and then they also promote uh, grains like wildly, like way, way, way too much. So, anyways, that's my rant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about low low fat diet cuz certainly in Spain uh you know where I lived for 20 years um there's not a lot of low fat uh dairy. You know, it's like cheese is cheese. You're right, not Right, they're eating real foods. If you make cheese from <laughs> from goat milk, sheep milk, cow milk, it got a lot of fat in it. These yeah. are just traditional ancient foods, and they're the right foods for people. Yeah, the key, you know, I I often think that the the key to diet for me, and the key to the Mediterranean diet, is at least as much about how one eats as what one eats. Oh, absolutely. This goes back to the slow food movement. Yeah, so, you know that. Um, things I learned from Michael Pollan was one of the first people I ever read when I got interested in this was sit at a table. Yeah. Have a meal. You right. Know, commune. Yeah. <laughs> have a social experience with your food. Don't eat driving in your f- fucking Prius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in Spain, cars uh, do not have cup holders. That's beautiful. Yeah. No fucking cup holders. And, in fact, when I got there, and this might be changing now, but when I got there, there were no, uh, there was no takeout coffee. You couldn't, you know, you go to a cafe and ask for coffee to go, and they just look at you like you're crazy, or they would give you the cup and saucer and say, "Oh yeah, just bring it back later," you know, because they assume you work like next door. And you yeah, know, that is amazing that you just said that. I just had a meeting. I've had two meetings with a a friend I just met. He wants to open a cafe. He wants to call it No To Go. Uh-huh. It's going to cool. be a coffee shop where we refuse to sell coffee and anything that can be taken out of the out of the cafe. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Grab that URL before someone else does. Yeah, I just I just spilled the beans. I'll <laughs> I better <laughs> But uh anyways, that yeah, that's where you broadcast. Yeah, right. To go.com. If it's not already gone, it'll be gone in an instant. That's right, the... right. You know, I caught you on Duncan's show and read the book, love the book. What's next? Oh, man. So many things are happening right now. Um, well, in the immediate future, uh, do you know Joe Rogan? Well, of course. going to be on his show. I'm recording on the 3rd. I'm not sure when he'll broadcast it, but... Um, so People I'm going to sell their children to get on his show. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a, a pretty big thing. It, you know, it's, it, I, I feel kind of bad cause I had no idea who he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, but Duncan kept saying, Oh, you got to talk to my friend, Joe, Joe's got a podcast. And I was thinking, yeah, okay. So everybody's got a podcast, right. you know, Oh, whatever. Um, and then, uh, and then I guess Joe was reading our book and he tweeted something about how he was enjoying the book. And suddenly, you know, I got all these tweets from people like, wow, Joe Rogan oh, yeah. liked the book. And I was like, wow, who is this Joe Rogan guy? And then I looked, 
his Twitter feed, he's got like 800,000 followers right. or something. And, and they're not just, these are not scam followers. These are real followers. Yeah, they're very enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah. So then I, you know, of course, then I was like, okay, I got to figure out who this guy is. So I, I looked into him a bit. And then last night I downloaded and watched his um, comedy special that he's got uh, for five bucks from mm-hmm. his site. You know, with it, like he did a U- Louis C.K. Louis C.K., yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so I watched that. And man, the dude is smart and funny. And I, I'm really looking forward to meeting him. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, you haven't met him yet? Oh, no. That'll oh, be cool. Cool. Record that. Oh. And then. Uh, yeah, and then I got an email a couple days ago. You know, when our book came out, you know, and hit the New York Times bestseller list, you start getting a lot of attention from TV producers, right? Because um, they want to do a, you know, some sort of documentary. It's you know that the books obviously got an audience, so they see money there. And so we started getting lots of emails from TV producers and. You know what they want to do is they just want they just want to give you a couple thousand bucks to sign sign off on the the rights and they don't even necessarily want to do anything they just want to put it in the bank they just want to hold yeah, it yeah they just want the possession they just want to procure it exactly so luckily yeah. I I'm pretty um, uh, hard uh, I'm kind of a hard ass when it comes to business I luckily I had some business experience in my adventure years so I, I learned how these things work. And uh, so I haven't signed off the rights to anybody, and uh, it's been over two years. We probably had you know fifteen offers or something, but then last week we got um, contacted by the people who made the film Gasland. Oh yeah, and I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to be meeting with them because uh, they seem to be a good match. You know, they're young, they're mm-hmm. smart, political, they're creative, fearless. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They want to shake things up and. I think, you know, I didn't want to make a documentary that was just based on the science. I didn't want to make some sort of, you know, dry BBC professorial, you know, here's an alternative view of human sexual evolution. I wanted something that, that um, you know, where the producers understood how this impacts our lives today, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to get into that. So I, I'm, I'm quite happy about the possibility of working with these people. And then I'm going to be pitching a TV show that a friend of mine and I developed this summer uh, called Sex Drive, which, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. So, but that's why I'm in L.A. at the moment to be to, to work on that. Okay. So, yeah, lots of stuff. And then I got another book to write um, called Civilized to Death, and that's under contract to Simon & Schuster. Yeah, I'm going to – I can't wait for that because – this is kind of like my new course of discovery is this is my broader, more my, my bigger issue that I really want to understand is, is civilization and the harms of civilization, how to unravel some of that, you know, and find some, some paths for, for people to live, you know, cause we get made fun of like in paleo, like, what well, do you use a laptop? I'm like, Oh, fuck off. If someone says that to me, you know, yeah. you, you can't make any change or, or try to mimic any ancient behavior or, or you, you know, you're ridiculed or whatever. But we do have to unravel some of this, the ridiculous edge of civilization. So I yeah. can't wait to see what you what you find and bring bring to me. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm, I hope I hope I uh, hope I come through for you. It's, it's definitely something I'm excited to be working on. I've got most of the research in the can. I just need oh, to cool. Find, cool. sit down and write it at this point. Good, good. It sounds like you're. It's the right approach. You know, you, it's your interest. So, yeah, it'll definitely. speak. It'll work. And thank you. 